Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together, for having us as a family, Lord. Not, It's absolutely wonderful that we have individual relationships with you, but to have, be part of your family as we remember today Mother's Day and that there is, you know, we all had a mom <laughs> or have a mom, so... Um, we thank you for that blessing. We thank you for all that you have taught us. And then we found out today that wisdom is considered a, is considered a she. Explains a lot about why men don't understand things, but I think that that's why you sent it that way, to give us an excuse. This we lift up in your son's name, amen. Today we're reading a um, devotional that's entitled Longing for God. And, you know, all week long I have been singing. In, you know, I've always got a song in my head. And, you know, the song, I'm Desperate for You? That's what I've been singing. That's been on a, on a loop in my brain this week. So longing for God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, Psalm 42, 2. These words of the psalmist sound strange to most people today. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In an age preoccupied with the things of this world, God seems almost irrelevant. But the psalmist had discovered what most people realize sooner or later, even if they refuse to admit it. The things of this world can never, ever satisfy the longings of our soul. Only God can meet our deepest yearnings. As St. Augustine said centuries ago, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What crowds out a yearning for God in your life? Don't let anything or anyone come between you and God, Isaiah wrote. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? your wages for what does not satisfy. God wants you to know him in a personal way, and he has made this possible through Jesus Christ, who loves you, and he will give you his peace. The hope for today? Lord, we could gorge ourselves on the world's offerings, and our souls would still be starving for you. This world can never satisfy the longings of your people. More of, your, of you, God. That is what we need. More of you. Good morning. If you'd like to stand and join us soon and very soon. Okay. <laughs> See 
be seated. Our Old Testament scripture today comes from Psalms 98. Sing a song to the Lord, for he has done wonderful deeds. His right hand has won mighty victories. His holy arm has shown his saving power. The Lord has announced his victory and has revealed his righteousness to every nation. He has remembered his promise to love and be faithful to Israel. The ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Shout to the Lord all the earth. Break out the praise and sing for joy. Sing the praise of the Lord with the harp, with trumpets, and sound the ram's horn. Make a joyful symphony before the Lord, the King. Let the sea and everything in it shout his praise. Let the earth and all living things join in. Let the rivers clap their hands with glee. Let the hills sing out the songs of joy before the Lord, for the Lord is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with fairness. And if you'd like to stand as we say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for all. Amen. And if you'll remain standing while we sing, no, not one. Oh, man. 
may be seated. I got taller there for a moment, did you notice? Yeah. <laughs> Our New Testament readings today comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, too. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. And if you join us now in a responsive reading. Praise and glory to you, Spirit of God. You are truth. You come like the wind of heaven unseen. Like the dawn, you illuminate the world around us. You grant us a new beginning every day. You warm and comfort us. You give us courage and strength beyond our everyday resource. Be with us, Holy Spirit, in all we say or think. All we do this and every day. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that that all belong to you and that you have entrusted us with various gifts, various talents. And we ask that, and you, but you tell us to share with others, to give back that of which you have sh shared with us. So Lord, we ask that the gifts that we give today, that they be blessed and that they may be used to further your kingdom in a manner that you find pleasing. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I can almost reach this. <laughs> I'm going to start off by doing something that isn't in the schedule, and that is I feel really moved to pray for mothers today. Motherhood is a blessing. It's an amazing blessing. And many women in this world never have a child. And even though they've wanted one so badly, um, they've never had that joy. Other moms have had kids and lost them. There's a great deal of emotion involved in being a mother. And I'd like to pray right now for all of the women in the world who have the, the desire in their heart to have children and haven't had them, and also for those who have let their children go back to Jesus. And that's what's happened, that's exactly what happens with Ruth. She had two sons and they both died. So if you'll just join me for a minute, I'm just gonna pray. Jesus, I lift up the women of this world. Lord God, they are given such incredible responsibility and giftedness to be mothers, to, to be lovers, to be 
encouragers, to be providers even often. And Lord God, they strive so hard to meet the responsibility with love and joy. But sometimes they need a lot of extra encouragement because of the circumstances of life. I know many women, myself I know, who have never had kids. They've never had their own children. They've never given birth. And it is the desire of their heart, and they can't understand why that hasn't been granted. I also know many women who have had children, and they have lost them either to death or to broken relationship. And that's a heartbreaking thing for a mother that just continues to ache forever. And I'm asking you, Jesus, right now to put your arms around all of the moms and all of the ones who ever wanted to be moms and give them your love and just fill their hearts with joy unspeakable and full of mercy. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm going to read you the first chapter of Ruth. And I don't know why, but I'm having a cry day. I don't have cry days very often, but today I'm just having a cry day. So if I start crying, just bear with me. I can do this. Um, if you want to read, read along with me, it's chapter 1. And it starts out with Naomi. And Naomi, meant her name meant pleasant. But by the end of the story, toward the end of the story, she asks that her name be changed to bitter because of the circumstances of her life. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Our friends are there right now. We're going to have some pictures of actual Moabites today. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown your, to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. I told you I was going to start crying. Here. 
Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, exclaimed, could this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, the old, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Hear me? Okay, I hear it. I hear it. Okay, so um, we want to talk about this, you know, this beautiful story this morning, and um, let's let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you'll encourage us this morning, that you'll speak to our hearts. We thank you for your word, which brings life, bring life to your people this morning, through what I will say this morning, Lord. May may you take these words and apply them to our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to back up and uh, not read uh, verses 1 through 5, because we did that last week, but pick up with verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, the reason for going back, uh, they had sojourned for a season in Moab, and then we don't know exactly how it happened, but they heard, Naomi heard, that there was food back in Bethlehem, which is where she was from. And it's interesting because Bethlehem means house of bread, and so she heard that there was bread in the house of bread, (laughs) so to speak. And so Naomi takes the initiative, and she is in desperate straits at this point. Her only hope lay in going back home, back to her clan, back to her family, back to the people that she's familiar with. Um, she, had, she was very poor, had no property left uh, in Moab, especially. Uh, so getting things ready probably didn't take too long. So they started the journey back to from Moab back to Bethlehem. Uh, next slide. I think it's... Okay, oh, yeah, okay, keep going. Okay, well, back to the this, this slide before that. No, no, back. I'm sorry. Yeah, the other back. <laughs> there we go, all right, all right. <laughs> so this week on Tuesday morning, I uh, opened up this email, and I'm going to read it to you. Hi, Frank. Dan and I are driving to Aqaba. 
through the land of Moab with your podcast playing. It was pretty amazing to be in this land while listening to your introduction to the book of Ruth. So the first thing I want you to know is that John's podcasts are famous internationally. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's an international ministry, John. We make this trip every month en route. We stop to give Bible materials to farmers who sell their produce on the side of the road. The lifestyle of these people is very primitive, probably not much different from Bible times. I have a picture of some dear ladies we gave materials to. They could easily have stepped out of a Bible story. I'll send the pictures along. So this next picture is uh, Kathy and Dan, our friends, with Moabite women. And I thought, you know, how, how you know, it's, it, it's always kind of fun to see, wait a minute, this is real stuff. These are real people. There are Moabite women in the world, and they were, happened to be going through there. Uh, we went through them a couple, about five years ago. We went on this same trip with them. Uh, but here they are in Moab. Well, the trip that they're taking is about 50 miles. And they're on foot. All right, so it's not, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a long trip. It, one source said that it was a 7 to 10 day journey. And it's rugged country. Next slide. Okay, next one. Okay, well, all right. Next one. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, here we go. Uh, you can see Moab is down there on the uh, kind of south of the Dead Sea. And they were probably somewhere, the Arnon River that runs through Moab there is, um, you know, they could have been there because there's at least water source there. Moab is a very, uh, a very desolate kind of place. Um, but they had to go up, and probably the, tr the trip that they took went up through Jericho. Okay, do you see Jericho there? That's, Jericho is right on the uh, Jordan River. And then they had to go up into, uh, from there, climb up to, to uh, Bethlehem. And Jericho is at 1,300 feet be below sea level. They had to climb up to Bethlehem, which was 2,500 feet above sea level. So next slide. Uh, you can kind of see out here, uh, you can see the hills. And they would have come along those hills. And then this is down in the Jordan Rift Valley, it's called. Okay, next slide. Okay, here's another picture. So you can see this is pretty rugged country that they're going through. Next slide. Uh, again, another, another shot of it. Okay, next one. And then the next one. Okay. Um, William Barclay... Well, let me, let me just give you a little history before we talk about that. So it could be a very dangerous journey. They were three women, soon to be two women, all right? And they're going on this very dangerous trip. Naomi was, I'm figuring, around 50 to 60 years old at this time, okay? Because she had kids, she had two boys, and we'll say she was 20 when she had those. They grew up and married. So that's another 20 years. And then we had 10 years, it says they were down, they were in Moab. So, you know, probably 50, 60 years old. Now, that isn't that old for us. Well, for us, okay. <laughs> but it is, it is in that culture because people don't live that long. I remember one time I was talking to a, um, it was a Turkish guy. And, and, you know, we were talking away and, and he, he, uh, 
he asked me how old I was, and I told him how old I was, and he just went, whoa, he was really shocked. I said, well, how old are you? Um, he was younger than I was. He was, like, he was like in his 60s, and he looked like an old, old man to me, okay? And, and when I told him how old I, I was, he went, whoa, they, you know, you must have better food in America. Or something. <laughs> you know? But, it, you know, people are a lot older there. Uh, they, they, they age quickly. And so probably she had aged quite a bit. Um, and so the road that they took, um, Bethlehem was about five miles southwest of Jerusalem. So they would have gone on the road from Jericho up into Bethlehem. And William Barclay says of the road, yes, uh, go back to that one again. Uh, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a notoriously dangerous road. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea, when, which, where Jericho was, is 1,300 feet below sea level. So then in somewhat less than 20 miles, this road um, dropped 3,600 feet, or for them, it was going up 3,600 feet. That's a, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's a tough trip. And it was a road of narrow, rocky crags and all of sudden turnings, which made it the happy hunting ground of brigands. Okay, he's a, this guy's a... Scottish, I believe. In the 5th century, Jerome tells us that it was still called the Red or Bloody Way. In the 19th century, it was still necessary to pay safety money to the loyal local sheiks before you could travel on it. And so we see, um, there's a, next one is a slide, and you can see there uh, Herodian palaces in Jericho, and then you can see that road going up. Uh, <laughs> alongside the Wadi Kilt, the, the ascent of Adumin, and then you go up and up to Jerusalem, and then you went from there up to Bethlehem. So it was a, you know, it was a rugged, it was a rugged trip. Um, so what we're saying is it was in desperation. Uh, she was really desperate to, to take this kind of trip. Uh, two women, at the, you know, by the time they're done, two women alone on this kind of rugged trip trip. Uh, Luke 10, 30, it says this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, this same road, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So that's the kind of road that we're talking about. This, a, this was a rough trip. Okay, then we go on to verses um, uh, 8 through 13. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who can become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now, we don't know where this dialogue takes place. Um, I'm just guessing that this is in the Jordan Rift Valley. It's, it's as a as they're somewhere near Jericho, and they're out of the land of Moab, and so they stop there, and, and then uh, they have this conversation. 
And Naomi, at this point, had nothing to give to her daughters-in-law. And that's what, that's what her point is. I don't have anything to give you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm poor. I have, no, I have nothing certain. I'm going back to my own people. But I don't know what's going to happen there. And so she, you know, taking their concerns to heart, says, what you need to do is go back to Moab, go back to your people, go back to the gods of Moab, and, and at least you'll have a family to take care of you. And so she's seeking a settled security for the two daughters. And the verb connotes permanent settlement, security, freedom from anxiety after wandering, uncertainty and pain. And so she's looking out for these daughters-in-law and saying, at least you can find a sense of permanence back there. There were few jobs for women in that culture. And Naomi had nothing to offer to these two girls. And she was also giving them freedom from any future responsibility toward her. She's saying, now you go back there, and, and I'll, you know, I'll manage on my own, but you go back, I'm, I'm absolving you of any kind of responsibility for my life, for taking care of me. And then she lists four, the narrator lists four rhetorical questions. He says, why would you come with me? All right, and, and she's saying, in essence, emotional bonds are not enough. I know you love me, and we have this incredibly close relationship, but that's not justification for you taking the risk that you'd be taking if you go with me. Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? <clears throat> Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? She couldn't have any more sons, and they would have no hope of finding another husband. But what I want you to notice in this, one of the things I want you to notice, is her love for these two girls. Um, you know, here she has two daughters-in-law, and the narrator, when he refers to the two Moabitess women, he uses the word kalah, um, which is a word for daughters-in-law. When Naomi speaks to them, she uses the word bat or bath, which is the word in the Hebrew for a daughter. Now, I find that really interesting. She doesn't call them daughters-in-law. She says, you my daughters, my, my, you know, you're my kin. And she has adopted these two, <clears throat> these two daughters-in-law and given them such love that she calls them their, her daughters. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful kind of... Uh, a beautiful kind of thing. I, you know, my own mom, um, when I got married, she just adopted Caroline. And they were, you know, uh, they were best friends. Uh, and mom could share her secrets with Caroline, Caroline with her. They were just like daughters, daughter and mother. And I really, really appreciated that. Uh, my dad did too. My dad loved Caroline. They, you know, they... they uh, but that, that became very important to me. And so they wept, and, and, you know, you can just kind of imagine what went on. They had two, you know, Naomi had two sons who died, and these two daughters-in-law and Naomi, uh, through the death of, of Naomi's husband and then the death of the two sons, the three of them became really, really close. Very close bonds. They, they loved each other deeply. And so they were weeping. It's also interesting 
that Naomi tells them to go to their mother's house. Uh, turn the next slide, I think it is. Yeah, um, this is kind of a typical house in, uh, in Palestine at that time, or Israel at that time. And you would have kind of a compound, and, and there would be different homes in that compound. So it would be a walled compound, all right? And then there would be different homes in there. And as a, as a son brought home a daughter, they would, they would uh, build another house on that same compound, but in the same walled area. And we had some friends in uh, Turkey named Osman and Figen. And they lived in that kind of environment. Uh, they, there was a walled area. And then they lived in a house kind of near the near the front part of that, but then the brother and the mother and another brother or sister, lived, they all lived in the same compound. In the middle of that then is, a, is a, a common area, but they all had their own separate houses, but it was all one walled-in area. And that's, so when, she, when Naomi says, go back to your mother's home, she's saying, go back to this mother's place, you know, where your mother's, um, live and in Moab it was a polygamous society so what she was saying is go back to your mother your mother would have had a separate house in this walled in area go back to her he didn't she didn't say go back to your father's house she said go back to your mother's house so it's kind of interesting and she says may the Lord show you kindness and we're gonna we're gonna unpack this concept of kindness a lot in uh, as we go through this study, but it's the word in, in Hebrew, hesed, or, which means kindness or loyalty or reliability, uh, compassion. And she says, I can't show you kindness, so I'm going to send you back, and the Lord will show you kindness. Now that's interesting, because at this point, <coughs> both Naomi and, I mean, sorry, both uh, Orpah and Ruth are, we're going to be going back to Moab, and she was saying, God's kindness is going to be with you, even if you're in Moab. So that's an interesting kind of concept. And then she says, it's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord hand, Lord's hand has gone out against me. And so we see a, a kind of a defective theology in Naomi at this point. She's saying, God has has gone out against me. And the word in the Hebrew means, um, it refers to an army going out with hostile intent. So she's saying, the Lord has gone out, he's gone out in hostile intent to you to bring disaster and poverty and loss upon you. And even though she's been faithful and living in integrity, She's saying, look what the Lord has done to me. I have, been, I have lived faithfully. I've been a good person. I've, been, you know, I've lived an integrous life. And look what God has brought me as a result of that. So we're going to see. You know, we'll see through this story then, God beginning to restore her and restore her theology. Then we get to verses 14 and 15. As, at this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And so it says that Ruth clung to her. 
she, she just, she said, I'm not going. <laughs> I'm staying with you. And even though it's, you know, it's an uncertain future, I'm going to hang with you. And so we see Orpah then leaving to go back to Moab. Now, kind of an interesting aside here. Um, you all know who Oprah is, right? Oprah was actually named after Orpah. But her parents were, were kind of, uh, you know, not real literate. And so they misspelled it in the death certificate, or death, in, the, uh, in the birth certificate. And so she got the name Oprah. <laughs> but this is where it comes from. It comes from this story. Uh, that's actually on her website. So you can, uh, you can, find, you can find that on the website. So, so Naomi is saying, go back to your people. Okay, they're the people you're familiar with. But she also is saying, go back to your gods. Now the gods of Moab was, was Chemosh. Okay, and Chemosh was actually... Um, was actually a warrior god. And so in 2 Kings 3.26, there's kind of an interesting story. And this takes place in Israel in the time of Ahab, okay? Now, there were, as you remember, this is later now, because Ruth takes place in the time of Judges, but later on in the united monarchy, then there's a division. Remember that whole story? And then there's the southern kingdom, southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, the worst of the worst kings was Ahab in the, in the land of Israel. There were no good kings in the northern kingdom, never were. But Ahab was the worst of the worst. And, and so this is where we pick up a story. And so, May, um, and so um, Ahab had conquered Moab during this time and forced them to pay yearly tribute of 100,000 lambs, that's a lot of lambs for a small area, and the wool of 100,000 rams. And so when Joram, who was Ahab's son, became king, Mesha, the king of Moab, revolted. All right, said, we've had enough of these, of these Israelites oppressing us. And then we pick up the story in 2 Kings 3.26. When the king of Moab, that is Mesha, saw that the battle had gone against them, so they're battling, okay? He took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, who had conspired with them, but they failed. Now listen to this. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. So that's, that's what the, the god of Shemos was a god who required human sacrifice. So Naomi is saying, go back to this to this God who requires human sacrifice. We go on to verses 16 through 18. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to go turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. This is the, that famous statement here. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So, the scene is, okay, Orpah has gone back to Moab. 
and Ruth is left with her. Now, in fairness, Orpah was really being obedient to what her mother-in-law said to do. All right? I mean, sometimes we can kind of judge her unfairly. She was just, Naomi said, go back to your, go back to your home, go back to your gods. And Orpah did so. But Orpah wished to become a wife again. Ruth chose to remain a daughter. Orpah did the sensible, expected thing. That only makes sense. That's reasonable. Ruth did the extraordinary and unexpected thing. And doesn't God do that with us sometimes? Doesn't God lead us sometimes? We were talking about this in, in, the, in the Proverbs study. God sometimes lead us, leads us to do things that don't quite make sense at that time anyway. Later on, we usually, we look back and we say, oh, okay, yeah, I see it. I see, you know, you were lining this up and that up and so on. Thus, Ruth models an adventurous faith, one willing to abandon the apparent sensible and venture into unknown territory. And doesn't God do that with us sometimes? He leads us into unknown territory. I remember when God led us into the mission field, and I, you know, we, we just, uh, we had no income. I mean, it was just, it was an irrational kind of thing to do. But God took care of us, and we knew it was him leading us. So Ruth then made an unconditional commitment to stay with Naomi. And she was making a declaration that she was going to stay with Naomi permanently, even until she's buried alongside Naomi. She's saying, your people, okay, you remember, <clears throat> Ruth is a Moabitess, totally different culture, and they were often at odds with each other. And she's saying, your people are going to be my people now, to Naomi. I'm going to be in Israelite society. I am going to take a risk of being in a culture that is totally foreign to me. She renounced her ethnic and religious roots. She said, your God is my God. Here's the point. Ruth saw something in Naomi, and I think Orpah did as well, that she was willing to risk everything in order to be with Naomi. Only love can do that. Isn't that true? Only love can do that. And what say that? Yeah, we do that at weddings. Yeah, yeah, we use this at weddings because love, we make that unconditional commitment until death do us part. We make that kind of commitment. One commentator says it this way One must not minimize the sacrifice and pain involved. Whatever her motivation or her knowledge of Yahweh, she willingly abandoned her family her familiar surroundings, and her religious traditions. She put it all behind her. She took on the uncertain future of a bitter widow in a land where she knew no one, enjoyed few legal rights, and given the traditional Moabite-Israelite rivalry, faced possible ethnic prejudice. And yet she said, yes, I'll do it. You know, we, in, in Turkey, we have seen so many missionaries who have made this kind of commitment. Um, and said, we are going to Turkey, and we are going to, uh, we're going to live as a Turk. That's, that's, our, that's our ethnic identity now, 
And we're going to learn the language. You know, most of them going have no knowledge of Turkish whatsoever. They have to learn the language. They have to learn the customs and so on. Well, that's what Ruth was doing. She was closing the door permanently on going back to her people, her parents, her old friends, and even other siblings and so on. Everything. She left it behind. She was willing to take a risk in a foreign land among people whom she didn't know and among whom she would always be a foreigner. That's what love can do. Love can lead us to the place where we, we, we put everything behind us and we say, I'm going after Jesus. And she was thrown in her lot with Naomi's. In geography, she was going to be an Israelite forever. She's saying, I'm not going back. In chronology, she was never going back to Mo. In theology, she embraced Yahweh forever. And we, and the word that's used in this is, that, is the word Yahweh, and it was the word for a personal God. So Ruth had come to know Yahweh. And so when she's saying, I'm going, your God is my God, she's saying, I'm giving allegiance to Yahweh. And we'll see later on this story what that, what that happened, you know, what that, the, the results of that. The Hebrew is even more poignant. It says, your people, my people, your God, my God. I love it. Your, your people, my people, your God, my God. Just four words. So, as I said, what Ruth saw was genuine love and integrity in Naomi, and she was willing to forsake everything and everything and everyone which was familiar in order to cling to Naomi. And I think that's a great reminder on Mother's Day, <laughs> you know, that, that we remember that it is love that can change a heart. I love that statement. Love can change a heart so that faith can grow. And that's what God gives us, is this kind of love. What's Ruth's motive at this point? Well, I think she had seen enough of Naomi's character and upbringing to decide that it was worth taking the risk of living in a foreign land. Maybe she's also concerned for Naomi's safety and is saying, you know, I'm willing to come alongside you and help you because you don't have any way to support yourself. But I would say that her motive was love for her mother-in-law, genuine, pure love for her mother-in-law, and for Yahweh. That's what was motivating. So we get to verses 19 through 22. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Okay, maybe seven or ten days of travel, and finally they get to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told him. Call me Mara, as Caroline was saying earlier, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Mara means bitter. I went away full. Here's her theology at this point. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the heart bar... Harley harvest, yeah. The barley harvest was beginning. <laughs> so they finally get to Bethlehem. And um, remember, Bethlehem at this point is probably 200 to 250 people. 
So we're talking a little tiny town. How many of you came from really small towns? Anybody here? I can, I, the city I came by, it was, it was uh, we call it a city, it was town, uh, Ashtabula, Ohio. It was like 20,000 people. But, but, I mean, this is 200 people. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is just a little tiny village. Um, I think I've got a picture of a village. Next, next slide. Yeah, this is a village. Um, it's not, it's, this isn't Bethlehem, but it gives you kind of an idea of what a little town is like. All right, just a few little, uh, you know, few homes, and then they would have fields around that, and they would go work the fields and go back, um, back to their homes in the village. And so it was a very small town, maybe 50 to 60 families, all of whom had known each other since they came into Canaan after the 40 years in the wilderness. So, you know, we don't know exactly how long it was from the time of, you know, when this takes place in, in, the, in uh, Judges, but they couldn't have been there too awful long. And those families knew each other for generations upon generations. So, you know, so they show up. Naomi shows up and the whole says the whole town is stirred. That's only 200 people, so it doesn't take a lot. But, but the whole town is stirred, and they say, here's finally Naomi. She went away, you know. They didn't, they couldn't, she couldn't text that she was coming. So uh, <laughs> a bad internet back then. And so, you know, so she comes, and the whole town is stirred because finally Naomi has showed up again. <clears throat> but kind of interesting in this. You wonder, where is Ruth during this time? You can just see, they come into town, the whole town gathers around Naomi, <coughs> especially the women, they all gather around Naomi. Where's Ruth? <coughs> Ruth is probably standing off to the side somewhere. And she's wondering, am I going to be accepted into this society? You know, what's it going to be like? Here I am a foreigner. Now the reality is hit. <laughs> and notice, I'm going to have to take a drink. Notice that the, the um, narrator says that Ruth is called the Moabitess. Right? She's now no longer a daughter. She's the Moabitess. She's the foreigner. <coughs> she's the other, the outsider, the foreigner. <coughs> she's probably very uncomfortable at this point, point, wondering what kind of response she's going to get. And then, of course, we see Naomi's sorrow and bitterness at losing her husband and her two sons. And he, this statement, she says, I went away full, I came back empty. That kind of describes what Naomi is feeling at this point. But the last phrase in this in this, at the end of chapter 1, is very interesting. It says, they arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So we see then all this, all this negativity, this long trip, all this, you know, loss. And it says, they came into Ruth, uh, to Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now that happens around March and April. And that's followed by the wheat harvest. And so they, they arrive just as there's hope again. They, they at least have food. 
And so we see at the end of the first chapter then, this note of hope into dire circumstances that Naomi is facing. Because when God is at work, bitter hopelessness can be the beginning of some surprising good. Isn't that right? And sometimes we, we, we look at it and we say, this is really negative, and God is just creating the scene <clears throat> to do something wonderful. So, what does all this mean to us? We as believers experience enough of Christ's love and character that we're willing to make an undeserved commitment of our lives to follow after him for the rest of our lives. This is what we call making Christ Lord of our lives. And we do the same kind of thing that Ruth did. Ruth saw enough in Naomi and enough of Naomi's God that she says, I'm willing, your people are my people, your God is my God. And we do that as Christians as well. We see enough. We don't know who Christ is when we enter into this relationship with Christ. We don't really know who he is. But we see it in somebody else. And we see genuine love. And we see genuine integrity and character. And so we come to the place where we say, I am willing to make your people my people and your God my God. Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy. Is that the way it was for you? It was for me. It was a joyful thing. I, you know, I, 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 I came to the place where I realized Jesus really is Lord. Jesus really is the creator of the universe. And I was, we were both, we were just so full of joy that it was nothing to say, wow. I'll, it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter what I have or, or where I've been or who I've been. I put it all behind in order to follow after this Jesus. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's why we make Christ Lord of our lives, because we've seen enough. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. We've seen enough. Matthew 4, 18 says, As Jesus was walking <coughs> beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. <coughs> they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Excuse me. Now, they had seen Jesus. This isn't the first time they'd seen Jesus. But Jesus just walks up. <coughs> he says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, at once they left their nets and followed him. I mean, there was no, you know, there, there was no doubt about it. This is where I need to go. <coughs> So Moab doesn't look at all attractive when we have seen Bethlehem. And Ruth looked back at Moab and her life and said, I see something by faith. I see something <clears throat> in Bethlehem that is attractive to me. And she says, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to go. She saw enough of Naomi's heart, love, and character that she was willing to make an unconditional, permanent commitment of loyalty to Naomi 
for the rest of her life. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So our role then is to go out into the world and to introduce people to the character of Christ and the love of Christ. And they see that in us, and they see what genuine character looks like, so that they too come to the place where they say, I am willing to leave it all behind and follow after this Jesus. That's our, that's our goal. That's our job in life as Christians. To, to, to Christ so formed in us that, we're, that we shine as lights in this world so that people can look at us and say, if you're following Jesus, I'm following Jesus too. If that's what it did for you, that's what it can do for me. And we live in a rough, rough time, don't we? I mean, it's a rough culture right now. It's a rough place. And people, you know, there's, there's just all kinds of uh, <clears throat> junk that's going on in our culture. But we have, we have genuine love, we have genuine character, we have a genuine integrity in Christ, and people are looking to say, is there something out there? Is there someone who has life? Someone who has genuine love? Someone who has genuine character? That's our job. Go out and demonstrate to this world, you know what? There really is a place you can find life. There really is a place where you can find joy and genuine, deep-seated love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have called us to this life. And I just thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our lives. I thank you that you have brought us to the place where we have seen, we have seen the character of Naomi, the love of Naomi, and so that we can speak to the Moabitesses of the world and say, come up to Bethlehem. Come on up with me. I've found something that's worth giving up everything that you've got, your people, your gods, everything that you've got in order to follow after him. Father, give us wisdom. Give us love. Give us a love for this world. Almighty God, that... <clears throat> that, that we are attractive to them and they see genuine life in us. Open our eyes, open their eyes. Help us to live the kind of life that you called us to live. We pray in Christ's name, amen. If you'd like to stand... Jesus is Lord of all.
Heavenly Father, we are on a journey. We are on a journey through this life, as Ruth was on the journey back to Bethlehem. So Lord, we will stumble, we will fall, but let us always look up. Let us always have our focus on you, and you will be the light that guides our way. Lord, this love that you've shown us is so beautiful and so that there is no way that we can ever repay except to love you back. So Lord, we ask our love to be to be true to you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God be with you till we